The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for October 29th, 2021. It's your old pal Justin, Robert Young. Can you feel the chill in the air? Ah, yes. Ah, spooky, spooky Halloween. It is upon us. All Hallows Eve, Devil's Night. Hope everybody is uh, getting ready. You got your costumes ready. I'm going as David S. Pumpkins, and my wife, Ashley, is a skeleton B-girl. She's part of it. It's going to be fun. I'm excited. Uh, uh, First Halloween here in our new house. And speaking of our new house, we are going to talk about local propositions. All politics are local, and we are going to talk about local propositions. Because, by the way, if it's a Halloween episode, it's an Election Day episode. This is what we like to call the off off year elections cuz it's a year away from the from the elections that people rarely care about but we care about it because we do a politics show. So the most interesting stuff on the ballot aside from the governor's race in Virginia which we will be covering over the next week are your local props. You, you the listener. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. We're also going to talk about the labor shortage. I have a great guest on from uh, the Twitter account West Wing Report. He is uh, uh, going to go over why he believes elements of this labor shortage are not going to go away anytime soon. Specifically, with one stat: women who have left the workforce. It's pretty interesting stuff. And the money man Dave Leventhal joins us. Politics and crypto, two of the things that are talked about on the internet the most, and yet they rarely intersect. Pretty interesting. We'll talk about whether or not that's going to change, and so much more. Bird You know, one of the things that I got asked the most when I moved from California to Texas was if my focus on California issues when I lived there would translate to me focusing on Texas issues. Now, as all of you know, I am a trained journalist, rigorously so, at America's premier academic factory For my profession. I weigh all facts impartially and present them to you without any hint of personal bias. Which is to say, 
that as I have gazed across this great country of ours, looking for proposition votes with interesting commercials and hilarious doublespeak, I have indeed found the best in my new hometown, Austin, Texas. Totally coincidental. Totally coincidental that I looked around the country and I and I found the best one here. Totally not laziness. It's not laziness. It's not the fact that I'm more interested in it because it is happening in Austin. It's not that. I swear. Please trust me. Please trust the media. Trust the media on this one. For real, though, it is good stuff. Welcome to Prop A. I've talked before on this show about how proposition votes are a great example of how politics diverge from issues. Really, the most scathing criticism that I ever get from any side is that I reduce issues down to politics, when in reality, I don't think that there's anything further from the truth. What I try to do is separate the politics from the issues. We have things that we desperately care about, and I think that those things are intensely important, but what we need to do is separate them from, well, the persuasion business, and that's what politics is. So to explore this, let me let me give you Prop A, all right? Proposition A to be voted on in a uh, final count on November 2nd here in Austin, Texas. Well, today is the first day of early voting for next month's election. And in Austin, all eyes are on Prop A, which would beef up staffing within the city's police department. John Krinjak is live in East Austin, where protest is planned as folks are heading to the... As I walk through the charming neighborhoods that I live in and around in South Austin, I see signs for both sides of this issue. In my neighborhood, seem like more of... The no signs are around, and they read as follows. No way on Prop A. Protect Austin parks and libraries. But one street over, there are a lot more yes on A signs. They read yes on A for a safe Austin. Well, hell. What do I want? Protecting Austin parks and libraries or a safe Austin? I mean, pr presumably I'd like both. One would think that a safe Austin would include a protected parks and libraries. Not mentioned in the slogans or iconography in either campaign is what is really at play here. Police! Specifically, more of them or and even more specifically, more of them as the city grows. Austin is on track to pass a million residents in the coming year. That's up 150,000 from only two years ago in 2018. What Prop A wants to do is make it the law for there to be two police officers for every 1,000 residents. Based on my back-of-the-envelope math, that would mean that Austin PD would have to have around 1,900 police on the streets to match the current population. But crucially, as the city grows, they would not have to negotiate with City Hall for more as yearly budgets happen. They would automatically be allocating the budget to hire as the city grows, rife with Rogan's, Musk's, and Poor's 
like me. This is to keep the city safe. Indeed, listen to this ad featuring a lovely mother and her lovely three kids. I am Lorena and I, I live in District 4. These are my children. I'm Sasha. I'm Sophia. I'm Balthazar. I worry about my sister's safety in our neighborhood. It's not as safe as it used to be and that, you know, the kids really have to be more careful. These are things that are happening in our neighborhood. Our children aren't don't feel safe playing at the playground anymore with their friends. I just feel like my children are being robbed from, you know, out of their childhood and they deserve to live uh, in a safe city. My children and I encourage you to vote yes for Prop A and help make Austin safe again. Austin is a majority white liberal city. The use of a Hispanic family is no accident. Other ads from Yes on A go even further to point out that the majority of crime in Austin happens in black and brown communities. This is designed to leverage a sense that, yes, while many uh, white Austinites live in fairly safe neighborhoods, they need to increase the police budget because this is where the crime happens. Or wait, is that just right-wing misinformation? Hello, I'm right-wing misinformation, urging Austin to vote for Prop A. We all know Austin wastes money on parks and libraries for Democratic hippies and their kids. But Prop A will take all that money and more and force the city to spend it all on police. Yes, it's finally time to put Austin hippies in their place, if you know what I mean. So join me and all your favorite right-wing extremists and vote for Prop A. <laughs> I mean, thank you. This ad is a cartoon, and the man speaking to you is a literal cartoon of a greedy, fat, old, white Republican. By the way, when uh, there's a moment, I don't know if you could tell, where the voice kind of winks at you. It goes like, ding! He's holding up a sign that says, arrest the hippies. The opponents to the proposition say that A is a blank check to the police union and that the budget for other crucial services like the fire department, EMS, and yes, parks and libraries would be depleted without an argument going forward. Moreover, it's an unqualified win for the police union, which the current mayor is at odds with. Also, opposing A are the unions for fire department, and EMS. Also, lurking behind this issue is Save Austin Now. This is the organization that was behind the controversial camping ban repeal a few months ago, which you might have heard of, that led to the removal of several homeless encampments on public property. This is their sequel to that successful effort. But amongst liberals who opposed that measure, Save Austin Now, is a creeping conservative menace that needs to be dealt an L. Now, there are reasons to support and oppose this. But the reason why I like doing these segments is to encourage you to please, please, please look into these props locally. They are never what's on the sign. They are always about something else. Either side of this Prop A issue in Austin wants to say what they really mean because if they were honest, they would not draw the biggest amount of people that would come and vote for their side. Honesty 
is not retail. If Yes, on A, we're honest, they would say, fund police for our growing city because we don't trust the incompetent mayor to do it. But they don't want to say that because they know that some liberal white people don't like the police right now, and they know that some liberal white people, in fact, the majority of liberal white people, probably voted for the mayor. If no on A were honest, they would say, stop rewarding the corrupt police union for doing a bad job protecting you. But they don't want to do that because they don't want to even mention the word union because a lot of liberal white people say union and say, yes, fantastic. We love unions. Why are you attacking a union? Now, I don't know if either of these sides are right, but if they put on the signs what I just said, well, at least they'd be honest. Let's talk a little bit about the labor shortage. Here to do that is a writer and reporter for West Wing Reports on Twitter. Paul Brandis joins us. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you. Now, uh, the the economy obviously is always the in in if it's not the number one issue in in politics, it's a story that it's not the number one issue, and one of the big factors that is affecting it is. The labor shortage show. So from your perspective, watching this, what is the biggest thing driving that? Well, the biggest thing driving it is just that a ton of people continue to drop out of labor force. I mean, what's interesting is that when we got the September jobs report in early October, the unemployment rate dropped to 4.8%. And people say, wow, 4.8%. That's pretty good. But it's deceiving, though, because tons of people actually dropped out of the labor force. And guess what? When you are not looking for work, when you are out of the labor force, guess what? You're not counted as unemployed. So that's why the number went down. We got about 195,000 jobs uh, added way below expectations. Uh, So that's sort of the problem. People are dropping out of the labor force in droves. Uh, A big part of that probably the biggest part, in fact, is women. Something like 300,000 women last month alone over the age of 20 dropped out. Uh, And the dilemma is, look, you can either work or you can stay home and take care of your children. That is the dilemma. And a lot of women are saying, you know what? I have to stay home and take care of my kid. They cannot find childcare. And this, of course, all ties back to the pandemic. So that's, uh, I think yeah. that's the biggest issue. Well, I want to dig in deeper on that. But before we do, one of the things that often gets discussed by the opposition party whenever there seems to be a low unemployment rate is the real unemployment rate or or or, or a, at a rate that does count people who are dropping out of the workforce. From your perspective, do we have any sense on what the quote unquote real unemployment rate is factoring in those who have stopped looking? Yeah, I'm looking that up as we speak here, but uh, there's no question that you know, a lot of economists uh, look to that as the more accurate figure. They say that is the, uh, you know, the proper uh, rate. And that is still close to about uh, uh, 10%. So that is, I think, probably the true unemployment rate. It does reflect, in fact, uh, the fact that so many people are dropping out of the labor force. That is the principal problem. So you see uh, Republicans, of course, well, when uh, Trump was in office and uh, the the uh, the real rate was high, of course, uh, Democrats would latch on to that. Well, now the shoe is on the other foot. 
And Republicans are saying, aha, the real rate is, oh, I'm sorry, it's 8.5%, 8.5%, not, uh, I said it was close to 10, it's 8.5, sure. maybe no, a little close to 8, 10. Yeah, 8.5%, 8. close to 10. So uh, we, we can, we can, we can, we can, uh, we can put that there. Rounding up a little bit. Uh, uh, from your perspective, uh, with that kind of, of golf, how much should we be taking these figures seriously, considering that we are in a very surreal time? I mean, I think you could really count last year and this year as something that will hopefully not be representative of uh, the years to come, considering uh, uh, the, the process that we have gone through with the pandemic and the effectiveness of the vaccines. Do you think that part of the numbers now are just something that's going to be a footnote to history that we'll look back and say, oh, wow, this is how this went now? Or or is is this the new normal? Well, the real unemployment rate, uh, the economists at the Labor Department, they call it the U6 rate. I'm not going to you know dive into the weeds here, but a year ago, that rate was 12.8% in September 2020, 12.8. Well, now it's 8.5. So the real rate has actually come down yep. more than four points. So that's significant uh, progress. So it's important to kind of, I think, you, you know, you got to place these things in uh, context, uh, Justin. But, you know, again, uh, you know, this pandemic, we've had a couple of waves of this and uh, the unemployment rate and uh, job growth and all that seems to uh, react uh, in uh, in the wake of these, uh, you know, of the pandemic when, you know, when the curve goes up, when cases go up, hospitalizations and all that, when that goes up. Uh, there seems to be a lagging effect on uh, on jobs. And when, uh, you know, when the pandemic numbers get better, uh, people go back to work and hiring resumes. It's this uh, this correlation uh, this up and down, sort of like a roller coaster that we've been riding for close to two years now. So I think that's what history will show is that, uh, you know, the pandemic gets worse, it gets better, it gets worse, it gets better, or at least the perception of it uh, does. And, uh, you know, people react. Uh, accordingly. I mean, when, you know, when the pandemic is bad, uh, we're not going out to uh, restaurants or getting on an airplane and this and that. And then there was a time, uh, you know, earlier this year when it looked like it was getting better and people were, hey, let's go, you know, let's go to, you know, uh, California or Florida or something like that. And now it's sort of, uh, you know, it goes back and forth. Well, we are Thankfully, in a bit of a valley now. So I guess we will we will uh, uh, see how we react, despite the fact that we did have that pre-Delta kind of false start uh, at, at the beginning of the summer that then wound up getting darker and darker. But but I want to get back into the question about women in in the labor force. The FDA talking today expected to uh, endorse vaccinations for children five to eleven uh, do we expect that that these are the kind of steps that will get a lot of moms back into the workforce because they can now trust that their kids are are vaccinated? Or is this a deeper problem, like you mentioned before, that it's not necessarily that the kids are vaccinated. It's the fact that childcare is either expensive because it's scarce or uh, child care facilities just simply do not have the staff like so many businesses. Well, I always thought even uh, that's such a good question. And I always thought that even before the pandemic, the trade off between child care and working was uh, it was almost no benefit for it depends on the person, of course. But, you know, the, the cost of, you know, commuting 
and uh, buying clothes and just you know time away. The cost of all of that just to pay for a super expensive childcare. In some cases, it was uh, a wash. So for a lot of women, giving up work to stay home and take care of the child is uh, you know it's sort of a zero sum gain. Except now they get to stay home and you know, watch over their you know their kids. So when you are slaving away eight, nine, ten hours a day just to pay for uh, child care and you're not getting ahead. Well, why even bother with that when you can stay home? That's what it was, I think, uh, in don't paint a general uh, broad with a broad brush here. But before the pandemic, uh, there were all kinds of stories about women one, wondering whether that trade off was worth it. Uh, I think it's definitely not worth it now just because of the pandemic. They don't trust uh, child care if they can even find someone. Uh, they're afraid to go to work. Uh, for the same reason. So it makes so much more sense for a lot of women simply to stay home. And again, that explains why these droves of women dropping out of the labor force, again, 300,000 last month alone over the age of uh, 20. So I think there's a huge change in the way women see work, uh, their relationship with work, and uh, they're just deciding that uh, it's just better to stay home and take care of my kid. Well, if that's the case, then this problem is not going away anytime soon. And I don't mean to say that the trade-off for women who who want to spend more time with their kids, that is certainly not a problem for them. That is a solution. But it is a problem for the economy, especially if there is going to be at least some kind of generational replacement that needs to take place to put more bodies in the workforce to make things go at least the way close to they went before now. So, so you think this is going to linger? Uh, I think it is going to linger. And in terms of who is going to replace these women, you know, what are uh, you know, what are all these companies, uh, even white collar jobs all the way down to uh, service sector jobs? What are these employers going to do? And the answer, uh, as you said, well, they need more bodies in the workforce. The question is, where are those people going to come from? That's a whole other can of worms, because one. The, the birth rate in this country is now at about a 40-year low. Women, families are simply choosing not to have kids. The economic burden of raising a child is uh, more expensive than ever. So the birth rate has been plunging for quite some time. We've had two nasty uh, downturns just in the last uh, 10, 15 years or so. So there's very good economic uh, reasons for people not to have kids. So again, birth rate, 40 year low. Uh, and when you combine that with uh, what, uh, you know, half the country is against uh, greater immigration, you could bring more people into the country and uh, fill some of these jobs. But again, you've got a lot of people who uh, do not want more folks uh, coming in. So those are the two problems. We need to get more people in the labor force, but uh, if we don't want uh, immigration, and again, half the country doesn't, uh, but women are choosing to have fewer kids, well, what are you going to do? And this in turn, by the way, uh, wreaks havoc uh, over the long term on everything from Social Security to Medicare. But uh, that's another whole can of worms. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, I, I want to thank our guest, uh, uh, Paul Brandis of the West Wing Report. Thank you so much for uh, your, your your insight into into the labor shortage. I, I think uh, specifically the idea about uh, uh, women uh, that that might 
you know, that, that might be a deficit that, that the economy will have to deal with for, for, for a little bit is, is very spot on. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's going to play out for years to come, I think. But uh, Justin, thank you very much. Uh, enjoy the chat. Absolutely. Folks, if you want to support this show specifically as I head back out on the road for you, heading back into Virginia, heading down to D.C., gonna make sure that we cover this, the biggest governor election of the year for you. Trying to plot a course for 2022, looking at where we're gonna travel next year. Guys, it only happens because you support this show. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you need to go. Go ahead and sign up at the $3 level. You get two bonus episodes each and every week. Indeed. You're going to get that Sunday, Sunday, Sunday show. That is where we break down all the Sunday programs. And boy, considering the fact that we are still in overtime on the Build Back Better Reconciliation Bill, that the progressives are starting to flex their muscle, that we've already had a grand opening, grand closing on a billionaire's tax, and then have the billionaire's tax come back. Ooh, this week's Sunday, Sunday, Sunday episode is going to be pretty interesting. Going to be very curious to see what people have to say about where they're at and what has happened over the last week. You also get the late edition. That's our Thursday show. A reminder that our Friday episode is recorded earlier in the week, so we don't have the time to go in-depth on stuff that happens uh, past, really, Wednesday, except for our late edition. That happens on Thursday. You get that exclusively at the $3 level. So why don't you head on over there right now? TakePoliticsSeriously.com. And one more tip of the hat to you, the fine folks that make it happen. The jingle jangle of crypto coins ring through the halls of the internet. I don't know. That's not a song. I, I don't know. Maybe it's like an internet carol. It's hard to avoid chatter and ads about digital currency these days. Indeed, people talk about it almost as much as they talk about politics. Wait a minute. Crypto. Politics. Politics. Crypto. Two great tastes that taste great together. Or do they? Here to explain is the money man from Insider's DC Bureau, Dave Leventhal. Welcome to the show, Dave. Justin, it is a pleasure and an honor. So in so many ways, the internet revolutionized uh, funding of campaigns. Small dollar donations are are now uh, uh, you know bigger than ever, and and a, 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 I would say an almost outsized mover in at least messaging for many candidates. So I guess here, let me start here with with the meta picture before we get into crypto specifically. From your perspective, watching these like watching these these financial disclosures, percentage wise. How big are small dollar donations versus, let's say, more traditional campaign contributions from big money donors or, you know, other kind of corporate interests? 
we know from the 2020 election that percentage-wise, they are a much greater percentage than they used to be, small-dollar donations, that is. And, and here's why. Uh, you have candidates, you have campaigns, you have political party committees that have instant access 5, 10, 20, 30 times a week to the inboxes of the quite literally millions of, of people via their email addresses mm-hmm. that they've gobbled up and gathered and in some cases purchased with, with the sole goal of raising money from them. Yeah. Okay? So if you can get those millions and millions of people, particularly if you're a national party committee, a presidential campaign, you saw this with Joe Biden, you saw this with Donald Trump, and, and you can get you know, even a small percentage of those millions and millions to give you five bucks here, 10 bucks there, 50, 100 bucks here or there, that money adds up very quickly. And, and therefore, to, to get back to your point, that makes up a bigger slice of the pie than it used to. I mean, go back to 20 years ago, okay? Yeah. You know, there was no internet fundraising that was taking place in, in any meaningful way. There was, there was no email campaign that a campaign would launch. I mean, there were, there were just a handful of political committees that even had the notion of raising money via the internet and were doing so in, in such a, you know, archaic and <laughs> ancient kind of way relative yeah. to what they're doing right now, where they might have like a PayPal site on their web page that nobody knew how to use or even how to like put their credit card into a web form. I, so- I, I think the, fir- the first and only time that I've ever donated to a presidential campaign was in 2000 for when I was in high school for John McCain's insurgent campaign against George W. Bush because he had given an interview that I liked. And so I'm almost positive that I paid via the Internet, but it was a very janky web form. And uh, I got a a handwritten uh, uh, or hand addressed package with a McCain 2000 T-shirt. That, that 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 came back to me for it. But like that is nowhere near because I, I had to qualify that by saying a presidential campaign because I'm almost positive that very drunk at a Dragon Con a few years ago, somebody just flashed me a QR code that I scanned and made a, a donation via Act Blue to God knows what you know, uh, you know, school board or local, you know, city council seat that this guy was running for. But that shows you the difference of where 20 years or I guess 18 years of technology was a janky web form that was almost no doubt insecure and probably exposed my actual credit card number to anybody who hit view source versus, uh, uh, you know, uh, I was in a conversation with somebody in an elevator said I did a politics podcast and said, Oh, donate to my campaign. And I was able to do it before it got to our floor. Well, you just nailed it. I mean, it's so easy to do now. Okay. Yeah. And it's easy to the point and it has been made easy, especially through the payment platform act blue, uh, which services Democrats uh, win red is the Republican analog to that, which is much later to the game. But yeah. you know, this, this takes a couple of seconds. Okay. And it, it's sort of the amazon.com of politics in the sense that you can click once, especially after you've already saved your information, 
major first donation. And hey, if, if you're getting bombarded with political messages, if you're doom scrolling on Twitter, you're just yep. like, oh, I got to do something about this. I need to donate money to some candidate or donate money to beat up on another candidate. Well, you can do that, you know, from your bed at three in the morning on your phone when quite literally 20 years ago, you had to go to a fundraiser physically or you had to write a paper check and put it yeah. in an envelope and send it through the mail. So that ease is making small dollar donations a much bigger part of the game and, and a much bigger focus for candidates up and down the ballot from president all the way you know down to school board, dog catcher and, and the yeah. like. And and again, uh, the biggest things with whenever we say act blue or win red, the reason why those names are there are not just because they are the most popular, although certainly they are, it's because they are blessed by the parties. And that is a huge part of, of giving a, a element of legitimacy to make sure that people know, OK, if I give money on this Internet site or on this app, you know exactly where it's going. It's been vetted by the party to some degree. They, they are the big kids on the block. There are others. There's uh, Antidote for Republicans and NGPV Van and you know, others on the Democratic side. But yeah, uh, Red Act Blue, that's where the real money is coming through. That's where the cash is coming from. And also recurring payments, which is something that is very easy to do in a box that you click on the way out during the moment where you're already parting with your money. The the As anybody who has you know, still subscribe to Paramount Plus or something knows it's very easy to get caught into a reoccurring payment and just forget about it, uh, whether or not you're still watching Lower Decks. So I mean, how, uh, how else are you going to watch Star Trek? Come on. Exactly. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, you, you make a great point that and we've seen evidence, Justin, of people who have not just made, you know, two or three or 10 or 20 reoccurring re- reoccurring payments, but in some cases have made 100, 500, 1,000 contributions to political candidates and committees because in a way it it becomes an obsession uh, and becomes a way for them to have an outlet for doing something in these crazy political times that gives them uh, meaning or or gives the process meaning to them. But it's very boomer of us, Dave, to talk about apps as if they are some kind of revolution. If we really want to be about Gen Z, brah, then what we need to be talking about are these coins, crypto, not only the very established coins like Bitcoin and Ethereum, Litecoin, but also so many of these alts that are coming uh, coming through uh, fly by night, some of which are, are fairly thinly veiled pump and dump schemes by influencers. But there is no doubt that a ton of money is coming through crypto. And when you marry the two, there's there's very few big, gigantic cash rich industries that politics doesn't happen to find their way into where there is money. There will be political pull. Where are we now in the intersection between crypto and political fundraising? We are still at the vanguard, which may be surprising to a lot of people who, especially those who have been early adopters of cryptocurrency, who have invested in it, uh, who use it, who evangelize it. Politicians have been slow to get involved in this in in a meaningful way, at least when it comes to their own political campaigns. Now, that being said, we wrote a story recently about the people who are at that knife's edge, who are the ones who have been in the political sphere, early adopters, who want to see people give via cryptocurrency because of 
various advantages or, or they just want to see this proliferate. They want to see crypto become more of a thing. And, and one takeaway from all of this is that it really runs the political spectrum. We've got examples on the far right, the far left, and pretty much everywhere in between of those very, very few, relatively speaking, who have adopted crypto in, in a political realm. It definitely is running the gamut when it, it comes to their political ideologies. One of the reasons why I would suspect that it has not gained the sort of traction is that crypto in general tends to be at least institutionally a long play situation. Like whenever you hear conversations about like Walmart taking Bitcoin or, or Litecoin or Ethereum or something like that, the idea is that, or any of these companies that do it, that if you're taking these coins in for a good, you sitting on the coin is going to be very well worth it for the company. The company's going to be around for a while. You're going to be able to sell like the 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 the, the Bitcoin pizza famously, which was, you know, one pizza back in the day and now is worth a kajillion dollars because of what that that one uh, exchange over time eventually became. In politics, these are often even for one candidate, multiple different organizations legally. Right. Like you, you settle up, you, you shut down one campaign, you settle, you know, so some of them don't settle, but uh, uh, you, you have different bank accounts, you have different people. There's not that same kind of institutional bedrock for the vast majority of, of politicians, obviously, with a few notable exceptions. Is that part of it that that you, you never know? you know, that you might have to liquidate these coins at, at, at a certain point. So now the upside isn't quite as high as, as high. So practically speaking, campaigns are, are generally speaking, uh, and, and there are a few exceptions like national party committees, but those being the exceptions, most campaigns are pretty fly by night operations. Yeah. Or if they're not, say they're a congressional committee for a longtime member of Congress, uh, they're they're very episodic, very periodic committees. They're they're always looking to the next election, but they're not looking ten years down the road. You're 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 on a very very short time frame here uh, for all intents and purposes. So, what we found is that a lot of candidates they have not embraced crypto when it comes to their own campaigns because. They don't really see it as an advantage. They want cash. They want yeah. stuff that they can spend immediately. Are, yeah, exactly. They are not interested in, you know, something that that might give them value five or ten years from now, or that may grow over time. And, and they certainly don't want to lose money too. So they they don't want to take possession of something that is worth might crash. for the sake of argument a hundred dollars today and then crash and be worth two dollars tomorrow. That would be a major problem because. Their their lifeblood, in essence, would be drained from them in the heat of a campaign, which is measured, you know, really in days and weeks and months, and certainly not years. Although it may certainly feel that way, especially with presidential campaigns these days. But that is is kind of a structural problem, which is interesting because there are some innovative tools that are coming available to politicians to kind of get around that problem. Uh, one is a platform called BitPay, where in essence, if you're a political campaign and you use BitPay, what that does is it gives somebody, so say, you know, you've got a Bitcoin and you want to make that a contribution, you want to donate a Bitcoin or half a Bitcoin or whatever the case may be to a politician. And you, you don't want to use your credit card, you don't want to use cash, 
you're going to use Bitcoin. Well, you're in essence giving the money to this platform, BitPay, which converts it into cash and then gives the cash to the political candidate. So it's a very you know donor friendly type of a platform that also gets the candidate or the political committee what they want, which is yeah. liquid cash, cash money that yeah. they can spend right now. They don't have to worry about it. They don't have to. They don't have to stow it away or stash it away. They can go and they can buy that political ad or pay that salary or or do whatever they need to do with that immediately. And, and, and that's kind of where we're at right now, even with those who are, are really embracing uh, Bitcoin, altcoin, crypto in general, uh, and blockchain technology uh, in a major way. So that might be the the, the, the the key for the moment, right, is finding a way station where somebody who is rich in coin can can donate it to the candidate in uh, uh, the way that they would like to get it. But I would imagine, especially for some of these fairly stable coins like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, like Litecoin, that that sure, there's fluctuations here and again, but but the the, the trajectory is fairly settled for at least the last few years that it might only be a matter of time before you start to see those big players like act blue and win red start to take them. Not for all the coins, not for the random thing that, that your, your nephew, uh, uh, his favorite YouTuber is pushing, uh, but rather like these, these stable coins. Do you think that this is something that could be realistic? Quite possibly. And, and you know, to name a few candidates or politicians who are using it right now, uh, Andrew Yang, everyone's going to know who Andrew Yang is. Yep. He's got a new party, the Forward Party. They are embracing crypto. Uh, the Libertarian Party has done this for several years. And very fact, on and brand. continues to do so. Very on brand. The National Republican Congressional Committee is the first major party committee that has also embraced crypto and you can make donations through there. So that, that uh, is that is direct the direct to them, not through the blessed online platforms like WinRed and NackBlue. And it, it is direct to them, but they are using BitPay uh, at this gotcha. point. They're doing uh, BitPay. Gotcha. And, and, and a few others. Uh, Eric Swalwell uh, ran for president briefly. Yep. Congressman uh, Blake Masters, a Senate candidate with very close ties to Peter Thiel, the, the billionaire mm -hmm. uh, investor and, and um, political bankroller himself. And, and so, you know, there are a few notable examples out there of people who are either taking the, the Bitcoin, the altcoin directly into their campaign, uh, or they're using a, a kind of a third party way of taking cryptocurrency and converting it into cash so that they can, again, use it immediately. But what all of them or many of them have told us is that, you know, they're going to be the outliers. They are going to be the exception to the rule until ActBlue and WinRed and those big play, uh, payment platforms that are servicing all candidates get on board and make it easy for everybody to accept cryptocurrency. Right now, if you want to make a cryptocurrency contribution through ActBlue using that platform or through WinRed, you can't because yeah. they don't accept it. We've reached out to them. We've asked them many questions. Uh, they have been very cagey and not wanted to talk <laughs> about what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, when they're going to do it, or if they're going to do it. 
But that seems to be at this point, Justin, the linchpin uh, that that is going to determine whether this becomes a widely accepted practice or if it's still going to be a very niche type of way to fund or help fund a political effort or a political campaign. Yeah, it's so interesting to to, to even like slot where you would think of crypto. Like if 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 it did, if you were only trying to explain it to somebody else, like it, it is almost like a fairly volatile but highly lucrative stock. But nobody donates stock to a campaign, right? You liquidate and you stock. Can, and, and a couple people do. So I, I would can? just interrupt you to say that. That's actually a good analogy is that uh, stock is something that that theoretically can be given to a political campaign with certain restrictions. And and there are, you know, investment type of donations or assets that a political campaign can have. You can invest money as a campaign. But again, it goes back to the question of why would you want to when you're so worried about just winning the next election? And so very few campaigns are are thinking long term at all. Certainly if you're a super PAC or a political action committee, you know, very rarely would they be doing that either. And and super PACs in particular are the ones that that can oftentimes raise the the most money because they're not encumbered by contribution limits. People can make million dollar contributions if they want to. I guess that's the other thing is expertise. With 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 a campaign, which, you know, you are you have a hard enough time trying to hire people on a campaign that are good at, you know, campaigning like the X's and O's of running a campaign, let alone anybody that's in your fundraising group is there to take in money. That's it. Like like the the idea of a specialized person that would be like, oh, no, don't worry, we're going to manage and sell at the right time your your, your, your crypto or your stock. Like that's just a, a specialization that does not exist in the furnace that is that world. Right. Take take Senator Rand Paul. I think he's a good example of somebody who is in general been very open to crypto. Uh, he has talked about it in in his role as a senator. He accepted cryptocurrency, Bitcoin specifically, when he was running for president in 2016. If you go and try to make a donation to Rand Paul as he's running for re-election to the U.S. Senate now, can you do the same thing? The answer, Justin, is no. He's decided not to accept cryptocurrency any longer. So that definitely raises a question of whether, at least for some political candidates, even those who are predisposed to wanting to to work in the cryptocurrency world if it's just too much trouble. He he wouldn't explain why he did that, but I, I think you can kind of connect the dots a little bit that not a whole lot of people are doing it. The the money really isn't there. It, it's it's a lot of effort or at least some degree of effort for very little return and, and goes back to the fundamental principle of campaigns, which is make as much money as you possibly can as quickly as you can. So you can do your political thing and run your campaign. Last question on this particular subject, where is crypto as just a signifier of I'm a certain kind of candidate in the same way that having like, you know, a, a really good website, like, like when, when Obama had a really good website, people were like, wow, what a well-designed, awesome, mobile friendly website that says something about the priorities of this candidate. 
I would imagine that crypto is the same way, that that there are some folks that are like, oh, he takes crypto. Now I know he takes technological or internet issues more seriously than somebody that would not. The greatest value at this moment, as we're talking here in October of 2021, the greatest value yeah. of crypto and politics, at least in an electoral context, may be exactly that. It's yeah. the signaling. It's the PR boost that you get from being able to say, I am crypto friendly. I am on the cutting edge. I am with people who support this type of financing uh, in our world. And I'm not a Luddite. I'm not I'm not the paper check kind of guy, you know, in, yeah. in essence, they're, they're doing today what the people with online portals on their websites were doing 20 years ago, whether that was move dot org or, you know, some yeah. of the, the early adopter candidates. Uh, said, so, yeah, uh, it, it's it's definitely about optics and it's definitely about attitude. And I think with the, the National Republican Congressional Committee in particular, that's an example. It's led by Tom Emmer, uh, Representative Tom Emmer, who also takes cryptocurrency. They're, they're trying to signal like, hey, look, we're, we're friendly to this world. And if you love cryptocurrency and you think this is the future when it comes to money and economics and finance, then you need to you need to come over here, come into this corner over here. We, we got something to tell you. Which is very interesting because, as you pointed out, there's not exactly one ideological underpinning. There is there is all across the spectrum, various different people taking it. All right. One more story that you had covered that I wanted to get to. It's a name that has very much been in the news a lot, largely because she has uncharacteristically for people in Washington decided that she didn't want to talk to the press a lot. And that is Kirsten Cinema. It has left a a lot of room for uh, speculation on what she's about and and uh, how much she has participated. But you had a great story in Business Insider or in, in Insider, rather, uh, get the branding right, uh, uh, on on her wine. There's this wine story about Kirsten Cinema. What 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 can you tell us? And, and if you were watching Saturday Night Live a couple of weeks ago, you you would have saw them uh, send her up something fierce on on the wine issue. So. Kirsten Cinema and wine. Why, why should anyone care? Well, to step back just very, very quickly, back earlier this year, we reported that Kirsten Cinema did something that by US Senate standards was pretty darn bizarre, which was do a internship. Okay. Like yeah. an actual internship. Yeah. Uh, that that somebody in college would do, but did so at a winery in California, Sonoma, California. Senator from Arizona, spending time yep. out of her busy schedule to spend two weeks in California learning how to be uh, a, 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 a harvester vintner. at a winery. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she, she worked as a harvest intern. We, we even spoke to the winery. They said she did a wonderful job and worked very hard. But nevertheless, can you picture Bernie Sanders going and, and spending two weeks uh, picking grapes at a winery? Don't think so. But that was what Kirsten Sinema was Maybe doing. a co-op. Maybe a co-op, but but not a winery. Maybe no. so. Uh, Mitch McConnell, you know, put, put in your slot in your favorite senator. Anyway, this is what <laughs> yeah, Kirsten yeah. Sinema was doing. So, uh, OK, she does this wine internship in the middle of a pandemic when she could be thinking about perhaps other things politically or governmentally. Flash forward to uh, 
last month. And uh, in fact, earlier this month, and, and we came across a, a report filed with the Federal Election Commission that uh, indicated that Kirsten Cinema again, had had a relationship of sorts with this winery called Three Sticks Wines out in Sonoma, California. This time, she had bought a whole bunch of stuff from the winery. Uh, she described the purchase that her campaign made as a, quote, meeting expense. But when we talked to the winery, they said, well, actually, wasn't quite that. She never had a meeting at our winery. She purchased a some wine and a, a virtual tasting yeah. kit. Uh, which is interesting okay. because that raises some issues about, well, wait, you, you can't use your political campaign for personal purchases, but yet if you're buying wine and online wine tastings. Is that for a fundraiser? What's going on? Cinema's campaign had had no, you know, nothing to tell us about it. Um, but the more you dig into this wine situation, the the more you see there, there being sort of this very fascinating relationship that she has with this winery. The owner of the winery is a incredibly wealthy former private equity guy uh, who now runs the winery. He's donated to her campaign. Cinema herself has had fundraisers at this winery. And, and it really just speaks to kind of an issue that we write about a lot in politics, which is the uh, the intersection between power and policy and politics and the politics yeah. being the campaigning of all of it and the funding of it. And Hey, if you scratch my back, then I'm going to scratch yours. And which, which can oftentimes mean that people who don't have a lot of money aren't getting their back scratched at all. So uh, what happens next with the saga of Kirsten Cinema in her relationship with this winery? Uh, I'm sure we will find out soon enough, Justin, but nevertheless, in the moment here, she definitely is spending a, a lot of time, a lot of effort, and uh, more than a few dollars uh, at this winery with, with some of that money coming back to her campaign. Now, in the same way that we discussed cryptocurrency being a signal, that you immediately are talking to a certain class of people, technologically literate, younger, moneyed people that that are frustrated mostly with the or frustrated with the government for any number of reasons but almost universally that the government doesn't take or understand the internet uh, particularly seriously what is it about wine that always gets politicians in trouble because like if i were to rank boozes if she does this with a craft brewery I don't think she gets in as much trouble if she does this with a, 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 a whiskey distillery or something like that. I don't know if she gets in much trouble in the same way that it wasn't it Mayor Pete that got in trouble for his wine cave wine fundraiser. Cave. The wine cave fundraiser. And wine is just it, it's 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 a feat, right? It, it signals to people that you are, you know, hoity toity. And and it's unclear what. Kirsten Cinema is signaling really about anything these days or what plays <laughs> she's making with, with, with this winery. I mean, if you take it at face value, if you're going to work two weeks in the fields, maybe she's just truly interested in wine. That, that's what her office has told us in the past. So she's just yeah. very interested in this. She just uh, really likes wine. wine. That's, a, that's a personal uh, uh, enjoyment for her. That, that is a way that she would spend her leisure time is out in the fields understanding how wine gets made. And and if you if you have nothing else and put it into the mix, then then that may be a perfectly reasonable answer. But of course, there are all of these other 
entanglements that also yeah. exist at the same time too with her political campaign and the money that's being spent and her relationship with the owner of the winery so there's a little bit more than than meets the the eye uh, when it when it just comes to her liking wine but yeah you know wine is a Wine is the beverage of the gods, right? Of, well, of, yes. of, of kings and emperors. So, shout there, out to there, Dionysus. There, there, there may be, without question, uh, some kind of signaling going on, although, and it's a little bit more difficult these days with Kirsten Cinema to pick up on exactly what those signals are and and what she's trying to signal, if anything at all. To tie it back to all this stuff that's happening now in terms of the the reconciliation bill. How much of this story just goes away if if her office says, yeah, we're going to do a fundraiser like this is a fundraiser thing. We want to do pandemic friendly Zoom fundraisers. This is a a a fun and interesting way that we can get money into the in, into the till. If they just say that, doesn't this story just kind of go away? Or perhaps uh, there, there would still be some unanswered questions, but this is coming at the same time, and a very fair point when you have a lot of campaigns, or not a lot, but enough political campaigns who are engaging in some really shady fundraising tactics and, and yeah. not at all being upfront, certainly with the press, but not being upfront with their, their own donors as to what is truly going on. Donald Trump is is chief among them when it comes yeah. to these, you know, incessant messages that he's sending out via text and email and whatnot saying that he's going to, you know, match your donation by 10 times and that yeah. he's going to send you a check and all this just nonsense, which is, is dancing really on the line of, of not just what is ethical and what is not ethical, but potentially what could be legal and illegal, which kind of goes back to this very obscure line in a uh, in a court ruling that that came out earlier this year, where it, it was called into question during the prosecution of of the shady fundraiser, as uh, to whether these matching gimmicks and and whatnot are are violating or even legal. Law. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, which, so which I think no yeah, that's... determination, but yeah, you know, being upfront about this stuff. Usually, if you say, yeah, I'm. I'm doing this wine thing because I want to raise money. Okay. That that's because I think now is the time where understood. you would get the most yeah. that's where you get the yeah. most leeway. Like I don't think ever before if you're like, oh, we're gonna do a, a wine thing, but it's over the internet and it's via Zoom. That's where it would have been a red flag before. Now it's like, oh yeah, we're we're we want to do a high dollar Zoom thing and the way that we can get people in when we can't give them a rubber chicken dinner is is to send them a bottle of wine and have this guy I know in Sonoma lead him through a wine tasting. That makes sense now. Like, I feel like that that would be the slam dunk, but she doesn't talk about anything. And so she certainly ain't talking about this, although she should to our friend, the money man, Dave Leventhal. Uh, 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 thank you. Thank you. Thank you again so much for coming on and and sharing your wisdom. Where can people find your work? Good, sir. Well, you can go to businessinsider.com or insider.com uh, and you can certainly follow me on Twitter and I hope you do and I hope to connect with you there. I am at Dave Leventhal, L-E-V-I-N-T-H-A-L. And where are you feeling right now about the Bills? This is a big, big season for you. Gigantic Buffalo native and fan of uh, a member of Bills Mafia. Where, where, where are you at right now, optimism-wise, with the Bills? 
I mean, my my mind is uh, in February uh, at, at uh, the Super Bowl competing for the Lombardi Trophy, but uh, we got yeah. a long season to go. And as you well know, we got to play the game. So Miami is coming up soon enough and uh, we're going to get through a. Uh, Hopefully a couple of good games AFC here. AFC shaping up. AFC shaping up pretty well. You know, uh, uh, it's, I'm, it's, I'm feeling I'm feeling about as good as this uh, this Buffalo Bills fan has felt since the early '90s, and that's saying a lot. Mm. Although that didn't necessarily go quite as well, but well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not going to get into well, that again. Hope springs eternal for February. Indeed, indeed. Uh, uh, Dave, thank you so much. Thank you, man. Politics, politics, politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. The show was edited by Brett Stewart. If you want to give a big thank you to Dave Leventhal for coming on the show, you can please do that by uh, heading on over to his Twitter and giving him an attaboy, px3guest.com. You want to email the show? Very easy. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. If you would like to tweet the program, it is px3tweets. If you would like to watch us live on Twitch, it is px3live.com. If you want to share your this podcast with anybody in your family, I made a reference uh, in, our, in our episode on Wednesday saying if you want to share it with the clergy that you interact with. And somebody hit me up and was like, hey, man, you joke. I literally send this to my, my uh, leader of faith, my faith leader. I forget if it was a pastor or I think it was a... Think it was a pastor. Don't think it was a minister. Anyway, share it with all of them. Uh, a, a, a pastor, a minister, and a rabbi all walk in a bar, and somebody tells them that they can get this podcast at px3podcast.com. That's the punchline. And also, if you want to uh, uh, donate something to them, to the 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 great and wild world of, uh, of everybody who loves this show in your life, go to politicsmerch.com. Get them some. Get them some merch. Of course, you can uh, give me a little tipperoo, just a one-time donation to, to let me know that I'm doing a good job. PayPal.me slash payjury. We don't know whether or not Venmo cash is real. You can continue this experiment by sending me $1 to justin-young-20. Of course, our cash app is px3cash, and you can send anything physical in the mail to P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. Again, P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. And you can get our bonus content. TakePoliticsSeriously.com $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week Covering all the news that we missed During our free podcast schedule And our $10 tier gets your name right at the end of the show Like these fine folks in the Titanic $10 tier Including Idris Arslani and DJ Katie Mack, Meister, Dr. G. Lord Scale, the Quince Anile, Admiral Flapjack, Utah Jimmy Montana, Edmund Blurbus Unum, Pete Spicery, D. Really? And Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Zombie Doc, Edison, no mention on the podcast, please. Dot com junkie, DP4 Bongo, Pop Gold, Jewish Lives Matter, 100 Mile Runner, Double K Ranch, Ye Old Pinball Shop, John Snuffies, Off Route 44, Neil. Charles, Darren, Olin and Angela, DL, Stephen, Chad, Miranda, Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, D Laser, just another pilot, middle aged Mike, the Gen, Will, J Pink, and Andrew. 
you would like to join their ranks. Very easy way to do it. Head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Sign up at the $10 tier. I hope you guys have a great, great, great Halloween weekend. The holiday season has officially begun. And I'm very excited to spend it with you. After this, we are on the road in Old Virginia. Let's see if we can bring something new to the Old Dominion. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss Dog and Pony Show Audio.